Hello everyone, I'm Laura and this is my husband Duncan and we are doing the reading this morning in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 19. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits on the throne in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So in case you're wondering, it's a New Living Translation. Verse 5. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of the world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, Circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Well, that is awesome. The word of the Lord for us today. Colossians 3. 
I love, um, I love the scripture and how it puts two things together. It puts together a to-do list, sort of. And, uh, but it also puts uh, together, it together with the why to do. So God, when we read about how God wants us to relate to each other, we often find that his list or the things that are, we're supposed to do are often accompanied with an extensive why. So let me just ask the why for this passage. Why, in, why should I have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires? Why shouldn't I be greedy? Why should I get rid of anger, rage, malice behavior, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language? Why should we stop lying to each other? Why must we clothe ourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? Why should we make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends us? Why should we clothe ourselves with love? Why should we let the peace that comes from Christ rule in our hearts? Why should we always be thankful? Why should we teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives? Why sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts? Why should wives submit to their husbands? Why should husbands love their wives and never treat them harshly? And the text gives us ample answers to that why. Because Christians have been raised to a new life in Christ. We're called to set our sights on and think about the reality of heaven. We have died to this life, and our real life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. And we're called to put to death the sinful earthly things lurking inside of us. Being greedy is being an idolater, worshiping something other than God, worshiping the things of the world. And we all used to do these things when our lives were part of the world. But now it's time to get rid of these things. For we've stripped off our old sinful nature and its wicked deeds. And we're called to put on a new nature and be renewed as we learn to know our creator and become like him. So in this life, Christ is what matters, and he lives in all of us. And since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with all of these traits that he describes in this passage. So remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And as members of one body, you're called to live in peace. Let this message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. And all of these things come under the banner of doing what is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. So we're talking about marriage and we're talking about vital relationships. In fact, we're in a series called Vital Relationships. And um, I'm just doing two weeks on marriage. Last week I did one and now I'm doing the second one. But whenever in the New Testament, when you find teaching about how family should function, how marriages should function, you often found, found it in the context of death to yourself and becoming alive to Christ. So look in Ephesians, like chapter 5, we read that one last week, and um, it's got some instructions for husbands and wives, but it's in the context of putting to death the things that are about living for yourself and becoming alive to living for God. Uh, this is here in Colossians, it's like that. First Peter has some of that. Titus is similar. But basically the idea is that if you're going to be married, or if you are married, if you're going to be married, 
God will use the relationship you have with your husband or with your wife to be a vital relationship to expose your selfishness and, to, and through that to put your selfishness to death, to draw you closer to Jesus and to make you more like Jesus. You are partners together in an adventure in becoming dead to selfishness and alive to Christ. Now, when you become a follower of Jesus, those things are positionally true of you. You are dead to those old things because of what Christ did on the cross, and you are alive to Christ. But there's a process, a big theological word, sanctification is used, in which those things are what's true about us positionally, that we're righteous before God because we have the righteousness of, of Jesus applied to our account, becomes more and more real practically as we submit, as those we uh, embrace that reality and start living out um, the, the practices that come with it. So, let me chart it out for you. Let me just have some fun. Okay? I did a little talk with the youth group. Um, well, I did three talks with the youth group, actually, um, earlier in the year. And uh, it was really fun. And what I did was I talked about where sex fits. But I'm going to sh shift it a little bit for, in light of the scripture we just read. So what's ultimate? What is ultimate? That's the question. What's ultimate? We want to know the answer to that. Well, it's easy for self to be ultimate. Yourself. Me. It's easy for you to live your life where yourself is ultimate. And if yourself is ultimate, then everything that comes along in life is an opportunity to serve yourself. So um, maybe, you know, maybe marriage is a good idea because you could maybe make marriage in a, in a way, in such a way that it can serve yourself. Wouldn't that be awesome? You marry somebody and they just serve you and you're the beneficiary and hey, let me in on that action. That sounds really great. But maybe marriage is not quite as good as, as singleness. Maybe singleness is a better way to serve yourself. Say, well, maybe if I live single, and you know, it's funny because lots of things are written, in, I read these, I see these things all the time. Marriage is no good for men. It's no, and then our other articles, it's no good for women. <laughs> marriage is under a bit of attack, you might have noticed. Um, and, and, but yet, you can use either of these to serve yourself. You really can. And, um, and then, what about God? Well, well, God or religion could be really convenient if it helps me um, create a marriage that serves me or create a single life that serves me. But, again, this is if self is ultimate. But what if self isn't ultimate, and what if actually God is ultimate? What if God is ultimate? Well, then... How do you serve God? Well, you can do that as a married person. Marriage is a good way to serve God. And the Bible makes it clear that singleness is also a very good way to serve God. These things can both be effective in serving God. In fact, the Bible, if you had to lean towards one, the New Testament teaching just gives a little bit of a nudge towards singleness where it actually says the person who's single isn't, doesn't have to, they are 
um, able to serve the Lord more fully because they're not trying to please their spouse. They don't have that extra uh, thing to do, and so they're able to be single-focused towards God. So it's funny. Sometimes in the church, we almost say that marriage is ultimate, and that's not true. That doesn't jive with what the Bible teaches. Marriage is a good gift from God, and it's God's creation, and it's wonderful. But not everyone gets married, and not everyone even should be married. In fact, some have chosen singleness as a way to serve God more fully. So if you're single, and you're in the church, and you sort of feel like that message gets subtly promoted that marriage is ultimate, even in two weeks of teaching on marriage, I just want to reinforce this reality that singleness is just as legitimate a way to serve God, and singleness is not a second-class citizenry within the church. These are both very legitimate ways in which people can say that God is ultimate in their lives. Now, how does it work? Well, in marriage, one of the ways that... Um, yeah, I'm going to bring sex back into the picture, okay? Here we go. Here, let's bring sex back into the picture. And I'm going to put sex over here in the marriage category <laughs> so you can see it underneath. So here you've got singleness serving God, and here you've got marriage serving God. Where does sex fit? Well, it, 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 is, it serves marriage. Sex serves marriage, right? So um, what is sex for? It's for procreation, for having babies. You can see that in the Bible. You know, be fruitful and multiply was, when, was the very first command given. Uh, it's for pleasure. You can read the Song of Solomon and, and catch on pretty quick that pleasure is a part of it. Uh, so it's for procreation and pleasure. I was trying to get another P word, and I was, but I wanted to say glue because it does. It has an ability to help glue a marriage together. Um, but glue is not a P word. So paste? Oh, I don't know if that sounds right. Or p- Plaster? I don't know. I didn't have a good P word. But anyhow, procreation, pleasure, and paste. You'll at least remember it, even if you think it's an icky thing. Okay. So that's, so sex serves marriage, and this is where it fits. So it, when I was talking to the youth uh, in the, earlier in the year, I was just, I, I, instead of talking about self, I was talking about sex. So I was putting it up here. And, and of course, sex can, is a good gift from God. It's an incredible thing. It's God's creation. It wasn't the devil's handiwork. It was God's handiwork. It's a really good thing. But it can become twisted and perverted, and it can become incredibly selfish, right? Selfish. We talk about sexual abuse, right? You can abuse. You can, you can, uh, you can have it function in, in, your, in your world, in your life, that it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing, right? So sometimes, as our culture, they, our culture almost portrays that sex is ultimate, Right? And that, you know, maybe marriage is the best way to have sex or have more sex. Uh, maybe singleness is the best way to satisfy yourself with sex. Um, but neither of these can be ultimate because they twist up marriage, they twist up singleness, and they, act, they end up putting God in this subservient spot where he's supposed to make us happy as opposed to us worshiping him. So this is a little bit of, a, of uh, how things how I sort of see things and how they, how they go, right? So God is ultimate, and self is not ultimate. And uh, marriage and singleness are both excellent ways to serve God. When it comes to marriage and sex and singleness and sex, they both can uh, say a very clear message to, to the world around them. Uh, first, through marriage, um, the idea with marriage and sex is that you don't have sex with anyone outside of who you're married to. 
So your faithfulness in marriage, like when you make your vows, right? I promise to, I'm just going to ad-lib them, do my best. Love, on and cher- love, honor, and cherish. What else is in there? Uh, in sickness and in health, uh, for richer, for poorer, uh, for better, for worse. Faithful to you alone, till death do us part. I think that's all the gists of it, right? That's basically the main parts, okay? So you say, I'm going to be exclusive with you. And, and that says something about God. That says something about God. When we're faithful in marriage uh, to you alone, we say that's, we're making a covenant. We're making a covenant. When you do those vows, whether you are a Christian when you do those vows or you're not a Christian, you might not realize, but you're, you're using the words of covenant, right? Life can get very, like when you say better or worse, life, marriage can get worse, really worse, and yet you're saying, I'll be faithful. That's a covenant. And it's more like uh, how uh, God's relationship to us. So faithful marriage and saying to you alone, it, it really is representing Jesus and the church, right? It's, re- it's showing that relationship with God is ultimate. And this is an image of it. This is an image of it. And that's what we, we looked at last week, Ephesians chapter 5, that uh, Paul said, it's a great mystery, but the mystery has been revealed. You ever wonder what marriage was for? It was to, God was embedding an illustration in all of the structure of humanity so that when Jesus came along, the Apostle Paul says, the mystery has been solved. It's been revealed. It's not a mystery anymore. Marriage was meant to point us towards something that's greater than marriage, relationship with God. So you look at a husband and wife being faithful to each other and saying that's how God and his people are meant to be. It's the greater reality. It's the ultimate reality. So you say God is, God is ultimate, but I, could, I would put relationship with God is ultimate. For singles, they also have a way of imaging how God is ultimate, right? Because, again, we live in a culture that's saying sex is ultimate. And so a single person is... Uh, What's the word? Chastity? What, is that the word we use? But it's basically a single person just says, sex is not ultimate. It's not oxygen. You won't die if you don't have it. And so I know, we, they, I know that sex is for marriage. And so when I abstain from sex, I'm saying something about God. I'm saying that God is ultimate and sex is not. That, I hope that all makes sense. And that's may be helpful for us to go forward. But God uses both marriage and singleness to illustrate that relationship with God is ultimate. And God uses the relationships in our lives, not just marriage, but all those other relationships. Next week we get to talk about parenting, the relationship of a parent and a child. He uses that relationship. And the relationships you have in the church. In a few weeks we're going to talk, a few weeks more, we're going to talk about relationships in the church. He uses all those things. For you to reflect, as a believer, reflect the reality that God's ultimate. And he uses all those things to bring death to that selfishness that we're born into, but that Jesus has rescued us from and in the process of, remo- of, of renovating our lives in those areas. So that's why we say all these relationships are vital relationships. They're vital to see God work in, you, in your life the, in the way that he wants to work. Now, I want to I 
shift a little bit here to something different here. I've got to, have you ever played the, the game, Would You Rather? Like, have your kids done this with you, maybe, if you have kids? My kids do this with, with me, and then they ask me, and, and the idea when my, I don't know if it's, maybe it's better in your home, but when my boys ask me, do Would You Rather with me, it's always two awful options. Would you rather have, you know, be eaten by a shark or by a crocodile? Or, you know, something like that. And you're like, what? Who, who wants either of these? But you have to choose, Dad. Okay, I'd rather be eaten by the shark. Okay, what, you know, so you pick one, right? So I'm going to give you two awful options. So we can play a real game of would you rather. It's just one question. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you some instructions. So do, do you guys have that on a slide? Can we get that up? Here's the, here's the two awful options. Would you rather be... Alone and unloved, or inadequate and disrespected. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I want you to look at that. You've got to pick the one that's less bad. Okay? So one of those is really awful to you. Don't pick that one. Pick the one that's less bad. Okay? And I want, I'm just going to do this first with men only. Okay? So only the guys on the first round. And then we'll get to the girls in a bit. So, guys, you're, you're being asked, I'm going to get you to do a show of hands. So actually participate. Look at those options. Would you rather be alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected? Which is the one that's less bad to you? Okay, men, have you got it in your minds? Give me some nods. Okay, so men, it's show of hands. How many of you... You say, the, the less bad option, the one I'd have to settle for, because the other one's way worse, is I'd, I'd rather be alone and unloved. Put your hands up if that's you. I'd rather be alone and unloved. I'm just going to take a quick survey to see. Keep them up. Okay, very good. Thank you. Okay, and then guys again, how many of you say the less bad option is to be inadequate and disrespected? Okay. Ooh. Okay, we're pretty dead even on this. Okay, let's go, to the, let's go to the ladies, okay? Ladies, would you rather, how many of you, you'd say, I'd rather be alone and unloved? Ladies, raise your hand. Okay, okay. And how many ladies would say, I'd rather be inadequate and disrespected? Interesting. So, I, growing up, I read the, these books. They're called "Choose Your Own Adventure," and I felt like this morning that when I got to this question, I would be choosing where the sermon went after it. <laughs> so, you guys were guys were sort of fifty fifty on the on on these, and the women tended to, to choose. Being inadequate and disrespected was the less... Did I get that right? Was the less worse. Okay. Okay, so for women, this was the less worse. So the worst for women was alone and unloved. Am I right on that? Did I get it? Women, one more time. 
the less bad option, okay, give me the alone and unloved. That's less bad. That's less bad. Okay? I think that was the bigger amount of hands I got. So women want to be adequate and respected. Am I not getting it? I've set this up so that I have to do a flip in my mind, and it's not quite, my mind's not flipping. It's not as flippable as it used to be. One more time, one more time. Can you help me? Can you help me? Okay, women, the less, okay, alone and unloved is less bad. Put your hand up. That's less bad. So that means that inadequate and disrespected is more bad. Correct. Okay, let's get it the other let's get the other show of hands. So how many women think that inadequate or disrespected is less bad? So for women, let me just see if you agree, inadequate and disrespected is more bad. Okay. Awesome. Not awesome for where I was going to go in my sermon. Awesome, because I finally got it figured out. <laughs> Interesting thing, because I'm, I was looking at the scriptures, Ephesians 5, you know, uh, hus- women, or, um, husbands, love your wives, women, respect your husbands. And different authors have come out and said, well, so that's just how it is, you know. Men really want to be respected, women want to be loved. And that's the higher value than the, the secondary value. And that's, you know, for maybe women want to be loved for. This is the authors I've read. They said maybe women want to be loved first and then respected second. And then the flip side is, you know, maybe men want to be respected first and loved second. And here's the good news. The, the scripture talks about both of these values for both genders, for both sexes. Right? Um, I'll give you a couple examples. In... Um, First Peter, it talks about men, be considerate to your wives. Um, and it goes on to say, or else your prayers will be hindered. But it says, and treat them with respect. So it's not just that husbands love your wives is the only thing you do. You should treat them with respect. So that's great. So both are in there. Uh, the flip side, another one is um, in Titus chapter 2. It talks about the older women teaching the younger women how to love their husbands. So there's a command, a woman in Ephesians 5, women must respect their husbands, but then there's, there's also teaching that's happening through the generations of older women teaching younger women how to love their husbands. So love and respect are for both genders. I was just very curious to see what you guys would say, and uh, I'm glad that I, I've got the results here this morning. I find it interesting, when it comes to the languages that we speak, with guys who were 50-50 on this one, which is very interesting, um, I, I've noticed a lot of times when I'm hanging out with guys that we are speaking the language of respect. Like, this is a conversation I'll, I've had many, many times. It sounds sort of like this. This is my side. So like, um, I ask a guy, what, what do you do for work? He'll say, whatever. I'll say, wow, that's, you know, that's a hard job. Long hours. That's challenging. I mean, I dabble in that stuff, but you really know what you're doing. It's nice to know an expert. I always wondered how that works. I got a lot of respect for guys who put up with that. I couldn't do it. I've had that conversation so many times with guys. 
And sort of like just speaking the language of respect. And maybe it's just, maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe we don't need it as much. Or maybe it's how we, we, we're wired or not. We only got a 50-50, so I don't know the answer. How about women? I think women naturally speak a more loving language than we do. Right? And I don't speak it naturally, so this won't sound natural when I try to do it. But I'll give it a stab. I just got to say, I love your shoes. Oh, that's a great perspective. Are you kidding? I'd love to see your pictures. Oh, your kids are adorable. Oh, isn't that precious? Yes, yes, yes. I feel the same way. It's like we're kindred spirits. We're practically sisters. Do you want to get a bubble tea? My favorite movie is Sense and Sensibility. (laughs) I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating. This is what I want to say. This is what I want to say. You're not going to be a pro when you're speaking a language you're not familiar with. And uh, as fake as I sounded doing that, um, yeah, you might, not, you might not naturally speak the language of love or respect in your relationship. But I want to recap a little bit from last week and then jump into this week. By the way, thanks for all the comments you gave this week. Um, Steve, good job. Way to give it to the guys. And then guys saying, you are going to sort of, you know, right the ship. You're going to balance things this week, right? You're going to give it to the girls? I'm like, oh, okay. So I know what the expectations are, and I'm I'm prepared to disappoint you all. All right. (laughs) So here's the recap for husbands last week. Um, I said that husbands were, um, both men and women are created equally in the image of God. They're They're both image bearers of God. And, and uh, they're both equal as humans in dignity, and they all both carry the responsibility to be fruitful, multiply, rule over, and care for creation. And in Eve, God gave Adam what Genesis says, a suitable helper, but really a strong partner to complement his strengths. And men are called to submit to God, which submission for God for a man, according to Ephesians chapter 5, means loving your wife. And Men are called to carry responsibility, not just for themselves, but for their wives' needs as well. They're supposed to care for their wives' needs like they care for their own needs. Men get to die because we're imitating the sacrificial love of Christ in our marriage relationships. So I I spent quite a bit of time on the thought of putting women and children first as a man in your life. Men are the first servant of Jesus in the home. They, they should declare, as Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then they should get about the task of serving the Lord, being the example of that, and calling the family to also serve the Lord with them. Men, should, men are strong, but they should, that strong strength shouldn't lead to harshness, but it should be evidence in a gentleness, which is power under control. And men are called to be considerate, and treat their wives with respect, even though they are weaker physically, but to treat them with respect so that their prayers are powerful before God. So, if a husband is leading in good things, if he's loving his wife, if he's initiating relationally, what should she do? If he's a servant leader and sacrificially loving, what should his wife do? Well, I have two words and the first one is respect, and the second one is 
respond. So I, I would say last week, if, you're, if you need help, guys, to say, well, how do I lead and love in my marriage? Remember these two words, servant and sacri- sacrifice. And servant describes how you lead, and sacrifice des- describes how you love. But for women, I want to I suggest, because I see it in the Bible, not because it's my idea, that respect and respond are, are the ways that, um, that you respond to this guy who's serving and sacrificing. So, respect is, is um, again, respect is that speaking that native language for the husbands. And again, it's not that they don't need love. In fact, we got a 50-50 response from guys today. So they do need love as well. But I think sometimes speaking respect, the language of respect to a man is the way they feel loved. Because a lot of guys, um, we, we have an inner sort of, uh, like we want to take on those responsibilities. We want to carry a heavy load. We want to... Um, I think we are inspired to lay down our lives. And yet at the same time, there's sometimes we have an imposter syndrome inside of us where we say, you know, if people really knew, they know that sometimes I'm feeling insecure, I feel scared, or I don't feel like that leader, I don't feel like that courageous, you know, guy who can take it on, or I worry about the responsibilities I take on. And it's an amazing thing. I think a wife can do an amazing thing to just pump the tires of their husband in speaking the language of respect. And it's just so simple. Even if it's clunky for you, it's just as simple as saying, I respect you. I respect you. One of the amazing ways my wife did this for me when we were newlyweds, so we're newly married, is I would get into bed at night, she'd get into bed at night, and then, and, and then she'd, she'd be thinking or processing. She's processing and thinking, and she's... And then it would come. She'd say, you know what? Today, when you did such and such, I really admire that. Huh. Now, I'm no dummy. I saw her thinking. I knew it took her a long time to think of one thing I did that day that was good. (laughs) But seriously, like beggars can't be choosers. I'm going to take it. It's like it still felt good. Still felt good. You know, even if you're clunky when you speak the words of respect, it still is going to feel good. Same for men. If you speak words of love to your wife and respect, both of them go together. You might feel, you might feel clunky or not very good at it. But you know what? I think you're, the other one's going to appreciate that you made the effort. And I appreciated Marnie making the effort to find something admirable about me when we're in our sort of getting to know each other in our first few years of marriage. And not everything we were discovering about each other was delightful. Yet she still made a priority to speak uh, incredibly respectfully to me, and I really appreciated it. And I knew how hard it, on some of those days it would be to think of anything positive. So it was huge. That was huge. She was making a huge investment in me, and I knew it was an effort. Uh, another one, <laughs> well, this one's, sometimes I've come home from, uh, I come home, and Marnie's there, and I'm like, you know, how was it, you know, with the kids today, you know, especially when we were, the kids were really young, uh, you know, the uh, older ones were really young, come home, how was it today? And she'd say, I'm so glad I'm married to you. And she'd give me a big hug. 
And I'd be like, this is awesome. And my initial thought would be like, I'm really nailing it as a husband. I'm really doing a good job. But then I think a little more and go, hey, wait a second. Were you watching Dr. Phil? Because if you're just comparing me to those crazy guys, I get why you think I'm awesome. I'll still take it, though. It still feels great. It still feels great. It's great to have someone. So there's just words I would say, you know, here's some words you can just use in your marriage. I love you. I respect you. If you can give reasons, that's better. If you can't give reasons, fine. Just stick with the basic line. I'm glad I'm married to you. I like our marriage. I like our marriage. Hey, I like my marriage. You know, I, I can't, I'm so amazed sometimes. I'm like, who would have thought that two nuts like us could have cobbled together a decent marriage? But we are doing it. We're doing it. This is awesome. We could have had all sorts of negative outcomes in our lives, but we're, we're managing bit by bit to cobble together a pretty decent marriage. That's something to be grateful for. That's something to be excited about. I appreciate my wife. I'm thankful that I'm married to her. I like our marriage. You should say that more. You should say those things more in your marriage. Sometimes you feel like, are we losing? Are we any good at this? Are we the only people who are just struggling? I mean, just use your words. So I would say, the language of the respect, the language of love, you know, talk to your spouse after this. Say, which way did you vote on that, you know, thing? What do you really need? What really pumps your tires? What really gets you feeling good? I want to not withhold those things. I want to bring those things to, to the marriage. The other thing is response. Again, because Ephesians chapter 5 says it in that way. It says that um, the husband is to be uh, imitating Jesus in how he sacrificially initiates and gives himself for the church. And then marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. So again, if a husband's leading and if he's, he's sacrificially loving, then what should his wife do? Respond. Respond. Again, this is where you get your, your uh, ammo for speaking respect and speaking love. You support his efforts to lead in good things. Let's say a husband says, well, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then he, in his best as he can, tries to figure out ways to do that. You know what? He might be really scratching his head on how to do that. It might be quite difficult. And then he makes some sort of attempt. You know what? He's sort of putting himself out there and being vulnerable. I would say respond. You say, I recognize the goodness in what you're trying to do. Don't say trying to do. I recognize the good thing in what you're doing. This is awesome. Find the good in what he's doing. Man, you can do the same. Find the good in what she's doing. Respond. It's imitating the church's response to Christ. How do we respond to Christ? Well, look at our worship service this morning. We're all responding to Christ. Right? He has, has given himself sacrificially for us, and we, with gratitude, respond to him. Enthusiastic joy. And so, I would say... If your husband's doing anything good. Speak it out. Affirm it. Admire it. Respect it. It will pump his tires. And he'll be, he'll, and it's not a thing. What gets, 
Encouraged gets reinforced. Right? So, you know, if, if you say to your wife, you know, you just did this awesome. She's going to go, oh, I'm awesome in this area. This is great. I'll do that again. And your husband, or you say to your husband, I just admire the way that you do that. You, you're really good in this area. He's like, I'm good in this area. I didn't know that before. I know that now. Look at me. I'm going to do that more. So you reinforce each other in these ways. So what about the, what about the, the awkward word in Ephesians 5 and in, in Colossians as well? Submit to your husbands. That whole submission thing. Let me just give a little bit on that. I think submission needs a little bit of some clarification from the Scriptures. Not from my idea of it, but from the Scriptures. Some of the phrases that I see in there, one is submit to your husband. So one of the things that's helpful is this is not submitting to all men, right? I remember running into Christian guys probably when I was in my early 20s, before I was married, and they, they would just be like idiots in how they would speak to women. They'd just be like, well, you know, I'm a guy, so, you know, you should submit to me. I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It says submit to your husband, not to all guys, but I know, you run into idiots. That's part of life, right? Not, I shouldn't say it that way. But guys who are ill-informed by what the Scripture actually teaches, right? Submit to your husband. That's what it says. Not submitting to all men. This is submitting just to one. And what is that submission? It's as is fitting in the Lord. That's what we just read in Colossians. As is fitting in the Lord. So what does that mean? It means that your ultimate allegiance is still to God. So if your husband says, he, you know, Hey, honey, let's put on our balaclavas, get some guns, and rob a bank. You don't submit to that. You're submitting as what is fitting in the Lord. So there's lots of things you wouldn't submit to. You wouldn't submit to foolishness. You wouldn't submit to sin. You wouldn't submit to selfishness or perversion. And you wouldn't submit to abuse. You wouldn't submit to those things. You'd say no to those things. And that actually would be submission. Crazy, eh? That actually would be submission. So you, you, you say no to things and because you're submitting to the Lord. That's the same with parent-child, right? My mom taught me, you, you need to obey unless we ask you to sin. And I was really hoping she would. She tricked me and she never did. So submit as, as is fitting in the Lord. So our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. What are some other phrases that... that um, that help us. I, I think the word suitable partner in, in Genesis helps us. So again, I, I put um, suitable helper is what's in Genesis. But I've looked into the Greek words. I did some study in there. It's not weakness. It's not like, oh, she's sort of like, you know, here's the man doing something heroic, you know, having dominion over creation and all those different things. And she comes along and, you know, she gets some coffee or something like that. That's not how it, it reads. It, those, the, the words that are used, the Greek words, again, I'm not going to get all into them. But they talk about, oh, this is a strong partner. This is a strong partner in ruling over and having dominion over creation and in caring for creation. This is a strong partner in life. So submission does not mean becoming this weak woman. I mean, why would you want to be weak intentionally? I mean, women, be as strong as God has made you to be. Men, be as strong as God has made you to be. 
That'd be a better partnership. Two people with some strengths are walking in their strengths. But I think that's good. But I think that there is a response part. I think there is a response part. So two things need to happen, I think, in, in relationships. Sometimes men, we, don't, we, we feel like, I don't know how to initiate. I don't know how to begin. I don't know how to... I don't know how to initiate so that she can respond. And she says, well, I'm waiting for him to initiate so I can respond. So what happens, I think, sometimes in, in scenarios, and I think this has been written about by psychologists. In fact, there's two books. See if I can get the titles to my brain here. Come on, download. Girls on the Edge is the one title. And Boys Adrift is the other, the other title. Two books written by the same author. But the idea is this, that if men don't know what they're here for, and we don't know what we're supposed to do, we drift. And women are responsible and step into the gap, and they take on way more than their share of responsibility, and they are living on the edge because they, it's too much. So you have guys without a sense of purpose because culture sort of said to guys, what is your purpose? Really? I mean, I think part of it was out of a good intention. We wanted to tell women, be strong. Be all that you can be. You can be any, you know, don't be limited by some sort of structure that says a girl can't be this or a girl can't be that. You can be all those things. I think that was a good message. But I think out of it, we maybe went too far in saying, but what's a boy for? What's a guy for? So I think that there needs to be an equal message that, guys, be strong. Step up. My, one of my favorite scriptures for this is Psalm 1. When it talks about a man planted. Now, this could be Psalm 1's for women too. But I love it. A man planted by the rivers of water becomes like a big tree. Basically, he gets into God's word and God grows him. And he becomes this big tree and, it's, and it bears fruit in its season and it's healthy. And I imagine in my mind that people take shelter under this tree. I think if you're a man, you're supposed to become a big tree. As big as you can be. Become a provider for as many people as you can. Become a protector for as many people as you can. Why not? And women, that doesn't mean that you need to shrink in relation. You don't think a man should be scared to marry a strong woman? Think she should, you know, you meet a strong woman, don't flinch back from that and say, oh no. I think just be strong partners together. And strong in Christ, right? Not just strong in our own our own self-confidence, but we're confident in Christ that he's doing, he's going to work in us and do things in us and lead us into scenarios that are bigger than us, but not bigger than him. So be strong partners together. All right. I want to shift gears one more time. This is what happens when you only give me two weeks to talk about marriage. I just have to talk about everything. I got so much in my brain about marriage and so much in my heart. I want to talk about something that I hope is going to be helpful. I've been praying for marriages that are in three different conditions and need a turnaround, and I'm going to describe them for you right now. The first condition is marriages that are stuck. You're stuck because there's something you can't figure out in your marriage. You can't figure out how to make this work. You probably disagree about something, and you just you can't get unstuck for some reason. My wife and I experienced this. Um, 
one time where we were just, there was something we were talking about and we we're trying to resolve. And every time we tried to resolve it, we didn't get a resolution. And that can be super frustrating. And when you're frustrated, you do all sorts of things that make it worse, right? You polarize. You know what polarize means? It's sort of like you're here and here when you start the conversation, but by the time the conversation is done, you're here and here. It's like polarized. I always think you went to the North Pole and the South Pole. You got as far away from each other as possible. And you, you get into those conversations, and sometimes you're demonizing the other person. Right? It's not just that you're talking about the ideas, but you say, well, you're this way, and you're that way, and it just gets worse. So this can happen in a relationship. Uh, so we, uh, one time we got really stuck, really stuck. So we talk about it, and it didn't get better. We talk about it, and we didn't have any solutions. And so it was getting to the point where we were thinking, maybe we should, shouldn't talk about this anymore because it's not leading to a good place. We're just getting sort of a little bit of resentful and a little bit of bitterness is starting to come in, and it could get a lot worse. And anyhow, I, I talked to Marnie about it, and I said, you know what? I'm scared to talk about it again. We're sort of both in this place where it's hard to talk about it now, and it would be okay. I, I have two guys that I know who are smart guys and who do confidentiality really, really well. Would it be okay if I went to visit? They both lived in Alberta. Would it be okay if I visited, went purposely to visit one of those guys, you can even pick which one, so I can sit down with them and see if they can help, if they have any solutions to get unstuck? And she said, okay. And I did. I, so I went to the one guy. I went for a weekend to spend a weekend with him. 20 minutes into talking about our area where we're stuck, he presented a solution that I'd never thought of before. I was amazed. I was like, how come we haven't thought about this? I mean, I, I'm in the helping profession. I've done premarital counseling for 25 years plus. I've done tons of weddings. I've, yeah, I'm not like a bona fide counselor, like you know the guys in the Christian Counseling Center or stuff like that. But I have taken at least six courses in counseling. How come I didn't figure this out? And I realized, this is, this is the thing I realized. When you're in the forest, you can't see the forest because of the trees. It's because you're, it's not that the person who helps you get unstuck is that brilliant necessarily. It's that they are not emotionally involved in the struggle. And so actually, fairly average people can help brilliant people get unstuck because they're outside the forest and they can say, hey, it's just 10 steps to the left. I can see your way out. And you say, how come I can't see that? You are so in it that you can't see your way out. So I I really encourage people, if if you're starting to get stuck and and it's getting bad and your conversations about it don't resolve things and you don't even want to talk, one of you at least doesn't want to talk about it anymore, get a third party. Whether you both meet with them or just one of you goes, like in my, our scenario, get a third party into the game. Get them to help you. My older brother was getting married, and he, um, his, they went for premarital counseling. And um, the lady who was doing the premarital counseling said, you know, half the marriages out there don't make it, and then half the ones that do make it aren't very happy. How are you going to beat those odds? She asked my brother. My brother's telling me this story. I said, I'm racking my brain. I'm 16 at the time. I'm like, oh my, I would not know what to say to that lady. I have no idea what I would say. What did you say? What did you say? I would just be like, I don't know how we're going to make it. I have no strategies. I have no ideas. And so he said, "Uh, I thought at the last second, 
we'll go for counseling. And I was like, oh, you're a genius. Wow, I would have not thought of that. Anyhow, but get a third party in the mix. Get a third party in the mix to help you. Here's two ways you can do it. One, go to a counselor. Go to an older Christian, right? Um, take in a class on marriage. Here's a, here's a good one. I, um, I was talking to a young, a young husband, and he was saying, there's stuff I want to bring up with my wife. I do not know how to bring it up. And I said, well, here's take a comprehensive journey through stuff, topics on marriage. So either you take a class. You know that right now that we've got, what, 10 couples that are doing the marriage class. It's actually called the marriage class. It's that good. It's the marriage class. Here at the church, there's another about five who are doing it in a small group. There's another three couples that are going to start it this Friday, the marriage class. I think it's going to be a repetitive cycle in our church. It's that good. But here's the thing. You take a class like this. Let's say you cover 10 topics in that class. And maybe two of them are the ones you couldn't bring it up. That's great. You have eight topics where you're like high-fiving each other. Our marriage is awesome. We're doing, we're rocking this thing. And then you get to that really trouble, trouble spot. And doing a class together gives you the common language to help have the conversation. The conversation that if you brought it up, it might not have gone well. Right? It's genius stuff. So get a third party to help you. They'll see it differently. Counselors, classes. If you're in an older generation, you might say, we didn't have counselors in classes back then. And, but you know what? If you're in an older generation, you had more communal support than the younger generations do. Let me illustrate it. I had a Gen, X, um, Gen Xer, okay, my generation. So they, this Gen Xer told me they were in the early stages of their marriage, had a few young kids in the home, and they wanted to walk away. And then they surveyed their family, friends and uncles and aunts and cousins and their mom and dad, and they realized nobody in my family has ever walked away from marriage. No one's ever been divorced. And so they said, and so because of that, I stayed. Now, I think it's, I can't remember if I got the stat right, but I think it's about 80% of marriages, if they are in a troubled spot and they stick it out, get to a much better place and are happy that they did. So in general, that usually works out. But the reason they stayed was communal support. They looked around them and they're like, everyone else is sticking it out, so I guess I better stick it out. I had a millennial chat with me, and they said this to me. They said, um, and they weren't, they weren't married yet, but they said, um, I've looked around my family and my relationships, and most of my relatives are divorced. And they said, is it even safe for me to get married? That's different. That's why counselors, that's why classes, that's why extra supports are needed. Because you aren't going to have this community around you as much saying, stick it out. Fight for your marriage. Get back in there, buddy. You're lucky to have her. (laughs) You're lucky to have him. We're with you. You're more likely to have people saying, "Ah, you don't deserve that. I wouldn't take that if I were you. Here's the path out. Now, I'm not saying that divorce isn't warranted in certain situations, but I'm just saying the communal support in the past was that you stick it out. And the support you might get now is that you throw in the towel. Hence why third parties and classes might be needed for a younger generation as they weren't in the older generation. And just, if you think this is just a modern thought, Titus chapter 2 spells it out pretty clearly that the older 
the men are supposed to teach the men to be self-controlled, to be all the different things in there. And the older women in the church are supposed to teach the younger women to love their husbands and do all these different things. So it's, it was the pattern even in ancient days that you didn't just tough out your marriage on your own. You, you went to other people to get help. And we're pretty individualized um, piece of the body of Christ in the globe, in North America. So it's a little strange for us to go get help, but I don't think it should be as strange as it is because lots of times, just like my experience, it can get unlocked in 20 minutes, something you could never have unlocked yourself, and you're missing out on that thing being solved. So from stuck to solutions is the first thing. The second thing is, um, is entitlement. Entitlement. Let me. Ju- oh man, do I have enough room for this? Let's see if I can do this. I've drawn this so many times with people. When you when you're first married, it's like upward awesome, right? You're like, I can't believe that I get to be married to them. Have you met my fiance? They're awesome. They're awesome. They're so great. I can't believe I get to marry them. And part of the I can't get to marry them is that they're, mm, there's a lot of things about them that's awesome. And the other part is that they'll be even more awesome once I'm done with them. Because in some areas, they're a bit of a fixer-upper, but I can fix them up. And then you try to fix them up, and you find that those areas that you wanted to change don't change very easily. In fact, the other person is very resistant to your efforts to change, and your efforts to change them are causing friction and resentment to come into the marriage. And so you try this strategy, you try this strategy, you try that strategy, and then you start getting this nagging feeling that they are never going to change in those areas you really wanted them to change. You know what you do at that point? You get really disappointed. Really disappointed. So you're on an upward, awesome honeymoon experience, your first few years of marriage. I don't know how long it was, but you hit this moment and you say, I tried for years to change this thing that I wanted changed, and it wouldn't change the way I wanted. What if it never changes? So it's like you had a dream, a mini dream within your marriage that dies. So what happens when you have a mini dream within your marriage that dies? I'm going to get back to this one in a second here. Well, when something dies, we grieve. We grieve. You can grieve two different ways. You can grieve in a really unhealthy way, or you can grieve in a healthy way. Healthy grieving is like you come to see that this is true, that this thing is not likely to come to pass, something you really wanted, but it leads to acceptance. tell you about me. This is a book called For Women Only. 
I picked this up several years ago. The, the Mums Time Out group in our church was reading it for women only. I picked it up. And you know what? It's a great book for women. Really, really good book for women. It's also a really, really bad book for men. Do you know why? Because if you read about how women are, are, are trying so hard to be great wives to their husbands, and you're a husband reading it, you're going to get feeling really entitled. And that's what happened to me. That's what happened to me. I picked this book up. I started reading it, and I started to think incredibly selfishly. Remember I said last week, you really should be reading your own mail and not your spouse's mail when you read the Bible? If it says, husbands love your wives, don't read that, women. Don't read that. It's not your mail. It wasn't written to you. If you read, a wife should respect her husband, guys, don't read it. That's not what you need to meditate on. You need to focus on the other task. When you come together, you make vows that you are going to love, honor, and cherish each other. You're talking about, I'm going to do my side. And the other person is saying, I'm going to do my side. But it's very soon, because of our sinful nature, very soon it, it descends into, you're not doing your side, and you're not doing your side. And I'm going to monitor whether you do what you're supposed to do, and I'm going to monitor whether you do what you're supposed to do. And I'm not saying you don't have crucial conversations when things are bad. But I'm saying that you can get entitled you can get entitled. And I did. It was a dip, if you were to say. I got selfish. I got focused on my needs, meet my needs. It wasn't good. It really wasn't good. So this, so you could be grieving something that's you could be going down, your marriage could be sort of taking a bit of a dive here because you're grieving something you dreamed would happen in your marriage, a potential in your spouse that's never come to pass. You could be going down because you've become entitled where you're not thinking about what do I bring, what do I give to my marriage. You're thinking about what you get and you're just trying to get that out of the other person. You could even be trying to make that person in your marriage your savior to make them, you know, we're imitating Jesus in our marriage, but none of us is Jesus. You say, oh man, I found the one. Now I'll be happy. The one is Jesus. He's the only one who can fulfill us. Your spouse can't. You can't, no matter how hard you try, you can't suck out of them the life that you need from Jesus. You got to go right to the source. So there's all sorts of ways that these things sort of go down in, in, in a season. When it, the grieving leading to acceptance. Acceptance is, okay, let me just say, you're stuck, you need a solution, go out and get that solution, however you have to get it. This is called hard work. You're grieving that your marriage didn't turn out exactly the way you wanted. Here's some things you need to realize. When you married them, there was things you were celebrating that are still probably true. Like, they probably still have goodwill towards you. Maybe. They probably still want you to flourish and do well. But the fact that they haven't changed to become specifically what you, the change you wanted, that's blotted out the sun for you. That's what grieving is. 
the death of something within the dream of your marriage is lost to you and, you, and it's blotted out the sun. But you know what? That's not the whole picture of your marriage. That's just what you're seeing now. And so you come to acceptance. You say, so these are the two ways you, you start to, sh- to come back here. Or I'll give you a third one yet. Is that you work hard. And if you work together and work hard, oh my goodness. You can take the steam out of your relationship really fast. You can bless each other really big. It's awesome if you say, let's get some win-wins. Let's find some ways that we can get solutions. That's awesome. And if you accept the other person, you say, I accepted them when I married them. But then you found out you didn't. That's okay. That's the process of your love maturing. And that's what this lineup is, actually. It's mature love. You start out with a, I, they're so awesome, so awesome. Just a few things I'd like to change. They didn't change. No. But you know what? I still married a good-willed man or a good-willed woman. And, and you know what? There's still a lot that's good about them. And there's still a lot of things that I saw here that are still true in who they are now. And even though I can't have everything I want or everything I dreamed of, I married them when those things weren't there anyhow. I said, I do, when the things I was hoping to have yet weren't there. I said, I accept you. I was naive. I was young. I was dumb. You can use all those different things. The answer to that is not to throw in the towel. The answer is to grow up and grow into mature love. And mature love is acceptance. So I accept you. Are you always going to do that annoying habit the rest of our lives? I accept you. I accept you. I'm, going to, I'm growing up into love that is way more mature than what I had at the beginning. And so, here's the last one. Just to end with this. I did write entitlement, and I talked about entitlement in my own life. I had a very similar arc where I was like, thinking about me, thinking about me, thinking about me, because I'd read the wrong things. I'd come to sermons with the wrong attitude. I realized that these two messages may have caused some struggle in your marriage. Let me point out that one of the main reasons why you might have struggled in your marriage because of these messages is because if you come with a selfish attitude, you can make anything turn the wrong way. But if you come with a giving attitude, I'm here to give, I'm here to serve, mostly it's going to turn in the right way. So entitlement for me, the answer to that was gratitude. Instead of focusing on the one or two areas which I thought, I want more or I want different, I began to focus on this one. I think the Lord is telling me Be good be to good, your, to be your be to husband, 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 husband. Oh, love your wife. Oh, well, that didn't get the same resignation. Okay. The Lord has spoken. Okay. 
So it was gratitude that turned the corner for me. I began to see again all the good things, all the good things that I had in my wife. And it was like I came out of a fog. I was like, why did I spend all that time focusing on me? I just, it wasn't, it wasn't helpful. It wasn't good. And I am so blessed in what I have in my wife. And so I began to celebrate more and be excited more. And I, it was a turning of the corner. It was a turning of the corner. And it was a new, into a new upward with me. Let me tell you one last story, and we'll end with this. I was phoning one of my friends who lives in a far-off country. His name's Danny. So I was talking to Danny and just seeing how he's doing and stuff like that. I asked him about his family. I said, how's your family? He says, really good, really good. And uh, he said, actually, I want to tell you something about something I tried that really was awesome. I said, what was that? He said, well, I've been listening to some podcasts about how important it is to be a grateful person. And so, as I was... Wow. So as I was learning about gratitude and how important it is in your life, he said, I decided to do something. I decided to keep a gratitude journal because I heard about that on the podcast. And I said, oh, okay, that's cool. But he said, I made it very specific, the gratitude journal. I made it about my wife. And he said, so I would write down pretty much daily or whenever I journaled, I'd write down something I was grateful uh, for about my wife. So I was so in order to do that, I had to pay more attention to the good things she was doing in, 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 in uh, our lives. And so then I was paying more attention. I was writing it down and recording it. And, and then I saw it more and more and more. And then I read it. And, you know, he said, as I was doing that, things started to change. The things I was really um, annoyed at that she would do, suddenly I didn't notice them so much because I was really focused on trying to find the good so I could write in my gratitude journal. Anyhow, he did this for a full year, and then at the end of the year, when it was, I think it was her birthday or something, he gave her this gratitude journal of all the things he'd appreciate about her for the, for the whole year. Now I want to test you. I told you that story. At the end of the story was your thought, man, it'd be awesome to be married to someone like that. I love to be married to a husband or wife that had that, that was like Danny. Do you know what the right response is? I'd love to be Danny. I'd love to be a husband or wife like Danny. I'd love to give into my marriage. I'd like to invest into my marriage. I'd like to begin to, I'd like to focus on the other person and see the positive and be able to call it out. I hope you're leaving two weeks of talking about marriage not going, well, now I hope I can get. I hope you're leaving with the attitude, and now I have a few ideas on how I can give. Because that's where it's going to change. That's where the change is going to come. Not two people trying to suck each other dry, but two people trying to outgive each other, outserve each other, outlove each other, outrespect each other. That's when it gets really good. You know what Danny told me? He said, You think I gave a gift to my wife, but I gave a gift to myself. I came to 
have so much more joy in my relationship with my wife because I saw all the things I was missing before. And so, yes, she got the journal with all the things I wrote through the year, but I got the year. I got the year. I got, I have a whole new satisfaction and delight in who I married. She's not perfect, but I got the year. I got the growth. He got the death to selfishness and sin and the coming alive in Jesus Christ in his marriage. Let's stand. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. Some days it's not the gift we we are grateful for. Some days it's very hard. It's very difficult. We get stuck. We get entitled. We're grieving sometimes things that we really wish we could have. But it's a good gift. It's a great structure. It's a great way for men and women who are so different to come together and say, let's be teammates. Let's make it you and me against the world, against whatever comes. Let's partner in this. God, you gave us a good gift. Marriage is a good gift from your hand. It's a tough one some days. It's a hard one some days. There's, we don't want to be living sacrifices. We don't want to sacrificially love or respect. We don't want to lay down our lives. But it's good that you've called us to those things. And it's good that you bring another person into the picture who sees our sin and yet endeavors to love us. That's another little snapshot of you in our lives. So God, I I pray for each one here who, who struggles just like I do with selfishness, struggles just like I do with entitlement and all the different things, I pray that you would just help us to serve, to come with your attitude when it comes to relationship. Philippians 2 said you didn't, you didn't think equality was something you needed to grasp. We already have equality. What we needed to grasp, but you've called us to serve. You've called us to lay down our lives for each other. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to do that. So Lord, I pray for any marriage that is stuck, is grieving, or entitlement has crept in. Lord, I pray that you would deliver them. You would deliver them. Lord, I pray that they would have in their hearts the attitude that they can bring. They'd have in their mind maybe some practical ideas that they could walk out. Maybe even as we've been talking here, they thought of a person they can talk to or a thing they need to do. Lord, I pray for the solutions they cobble together. Maybe very unusual, unique solutions that just work for them. God bless that. I pray for great joy in two sinners following a Savior in marriage together. We ask for your blessing on our marriages. In the name of Jesus, amen.
will believe it. I will believe it. You make mountains move. You make giants fall. You use songs of praise to shake prison walls. And I will speak to my fear. I will preach to my doubt that you were someone to pray with you today about anything, anything. Just come and, uh, and join us here at the front. We just want to pray for people, bless people. Hey, maybe you want to have someone just bless your marriage. Come. Say, well, I like our marriage. We'll bless it. We'll just agree with you in prayer. Have a great rest of the week and, um, and start investing. Find a way to invest in your relationships. God bless you.